You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode of Monster Talk is sponsored by the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University. Are you ready to acquire the persuasive communication skills that you need to reach your full potential as a leader in science, technology, engineering, or medicine? Check out the college's new graduate certificate in STEM leadership communication. Designed specifically for STEM professionals, it features just four online classes taken at your own pace from anywhere. Earn the communication skills that today's employers demand with the fully online STEM Leadership Communication Certificate. Visit comc.ttu.edu slash STEM Leadership to learn more. War criminals, serial killers, kidnappers, terrorists... The litany of labels we use to describe the people who perform or orchestrate monstrous acts against other humans is exceedingly long with a history as old as humanity itself. For all the powerful good that language has given us to describe, to teach, to remember, it's also been the tool which allowed the amplification of cruelty through the coordinated efforts of societies. Considering all the time we spend as children with our covers tucked up to our chins, worried about the dark crack in the closet door, it's ironic how little regard we give to the more real and present danger. The danger that we ourselves can become monsters, either through our own actions, or through complicity, or through apathy. quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. What you're about to hear is a conversation with Dr. David Perlmutter of Texas Tech University. David is the Dean of the College of Media Communications. And Karen and I recently returned from a multi-day trip to the campus at Lubbock, where we lectured several classes and presented a panel at LubbockCon. Hopefully you'll enjoy the audio quality of this interview. It was recorded in the campus's radio station using their very nice equipment. I believe it's the first time I've sat in a radio studio since leaving the Navy, and it was fun to be back in that kind of a space again. 
So thanks again to Texas Tech University and particularly to Dean Perlmutter and his wonderful colleagues there at the campus in Lubbock. Speaking of Texas, I'll be in Austin and San Marcos for the Of Gods and Monsters Academic Conference April 4th through the 6th. And I'm going to try to figure out some logistics for maybe doing a Monster Talk meetup on there, probably in the Austin area. I was thinking about possibly hitting the Museum of the Weird there and going to see the Minnesota Iceman again. If I'm able to put that together with any degree of certitude, I'll send a note out to the patrons and I'll put something on our Facebook page as well. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Karen. And I'm Blake. Uh, today we're welcoming back Dr. David Perlmutter. But before we get to the interview, I should mention that we're recording this at Texas Tech University thanks to the generous arrangements made by the College of Media and Communication where David is currently serving as dean. Today we're going to be talking about human beings as monster. Man as monster, if you will. So. Humans as monsters. Humans as monsters. Don't be sexist. I'm not genderist. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, and welcome to Lubbock. I, I think this is your first time, both of you, to our fair yes, city. It is. And you were both big hits at Lubbock Con. Thank with you. With a panel and mm -hmm. personal appearances and talking to people there. And then, of course, you've been talking to our classes today, science, communication, yes. interactive, gaming, media, popular culture. You guys are just great in person. I want to assure the listeners that you are not just radio personalities. You are wonderful teachers as well. Oh, but we have faces for radio. We do. I was, I was built for radio. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, he's nodding in agreement. Agree. Yeah. <laughs> I'm nodding at you, Blake. Well, there, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I shouldn't say we. <laughs> but thank you again for having us. This has been tremendous. We've had so fun. much fun. Yeah, yeah. this has been and great. We're so. really impressed with the university and so. the students and the teachers and everyone's been so kind to us and yeah. had a great time. And it's been amazing to talk to your instructors. Um, I feel like I've been getting a crash course in what media studies look like today. Mm -hmm. uh, I married someone oh. who's a communication major, um, and uh, but uh, you know she hasn't been to school in a while, and and uh, and this has been really really fascinating because it's made me think in sort of meta terms around mm -hmm. you know not just what our message is, but how you even think about messaging. So it's really interesting. Oh yeah, and it's also been an opportunity for us to look uh, just inwards and to see how we do the show and yes. and, and what we're about and. Uh, and what our philosophies are, because we haven't done much of that, really. We've just done the show. Yeah, it's, 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 I keep thinking of the word organic. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's been a natural progression to get us where we are, but um, it is interesting to look back at it and see, you know, how we've gotten to where we're at and maybe what some of the strategies are that we should be using going forward should exactly. we find ourselves with time. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it struck me how many of the 180-plus episodes you've done were the media, general, specific have been a variable. That is, the media played a role in UFOs and in, in Bigfoot, yeah. in, oh, in yeah, Loch Ness yeah. Monster, yeah. Yeah. in the in the original story behind perhaps some legend to the reporting to uh, the the wonderful term that you coined, Blake scripted, where there was a movie that showed a monster and then people started seeing the monster. And then it became a popular phenomenon where there was an assumption that there actually was a real monster that the movie was based on. Right, right. which then weirdly leads to more movies, which leads to affecting the continuing uh, interplay there. This is going to come up again really soon. I don't want to go into it right now because it's going to be a very long episode, I can tell. But 
the we're we're going to get into how the hollow earth directly leads to modern UFO culture, and it's really interesting. So mm-hmm. I think that's going to be fun. But today, and I learned that I learned that from your show about oh, oh, these yeah. sort of hidden connections. You and I, don't, I sound, I sound like <laughs> I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but but there are a lot of yeah. interesting connections that I didn't know about between one belief system, conspiracy entity, phenomenon, and something. And it, it, here it is. It gets picked up over here. It, it, nothing, nothing, uh, we always tell students everything is connected to everything else. Yes, you, it's a network. Hard enough. Right, right. And so certainly a lot of the cultural phenomena that you look are, are connected to each other in different and, ways. And I don't want to bore listeners when, with those meta issues. But I think we're trying to address them in, in ways that we can not only point out the connections, but also keep it interesting and, and, and sort of help contextualize some of these stories as well as critically analyze them. I, I do think... Um, that, that connectedness. There, there's a kind of one view of whenever someone in this sort of field says everything's connected, you immediately think they're like they have a cork board at home with pictures and string and pins, you know. But but there is a a, 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 a mimetic or narrative connection to all these things. That, like there's a history behind the people who are the messengers. There's a connection in the message itself. It's really really interconnected. So well, one of the takeaways I've had from your episodes, which we talked about in what I guess will be the upper other episode about the con itself is that we are human beings. <laughs> we have common biological, psychological systems and mechanisms for dealing with the world around us. And right. so it's not a surprise that you look at multiple phenomenon, a phenomenon here, a phenomenon there, and people process them very similarly. Mm-hmm. It's true. Um but we also sometimes do terrible things, and I think that's what we're here to talk about today. Yes, yeah, so, yeah. Yep. So monsters, let's get into it then. Uh, well, we tend to think of monsters as imaginary and grotesque, unnatural creatures. So what's a monstrous human then? Well, that's what's interesting is, is uh, someone will say, well, I went to a monster movie, hmm. and I really enjoyed it. On the other hand, you say you went to a movie which was about human beings behaving monstrously to each other. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. I had a, a, a it was the roller coaster ride of the of the summer was not the appropriate descriptor of the movie. Right, right. right. A movie about the the killing fields of Cambodia or the, the mm-hmm. Holocaust yeah. or yeah. or the genocide in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't use those same descriptors, and yet you're using this word monstrous mm-hmm. and, and monster, human monster, a monster monster in different contexts. And of course, right. as, as a linguist. There's probably things that you could say about how we deploy these very identical words in different contexts. Uh, yeah, well, um, I'll put on the spot now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that uh, we're, when we talk about monsters, we're talking about often talking about mythical creatures that haven't been proven. But if we're talking about humans, then we're talking about creatures that we know do exist. So we're really dehumanizing um, that person and we're saying, we're separating ourselves from that person and saying they're not like us, that this person is not human, this person's inhuman, inhumane, um, they're, they're monstrous, they're, they're different to us. So I think it's really a, a, a method of dehumanising a person. Um, and, of, of course, we can dehumanise in, in lots of different ways. Um, and I guess we're going to be getting more into that too, using monster as a, a, a different label. Um, because for some people, uh, someone that we might see as a monster might be a saviour in a different sense. Um, someone that someone else sees as a monster we might think is just a, a person who's different in some way. Um, so I guess we'll get into the different interpretations of, 
of monsters. Yeah, and that's that's a very important consideration because I mean it, it sounds trite to say you know one person's uh, freedom fighter is another person's terrorist, right? Right. I mean, but but we have seen many phenomena where people who are in one group of people up voted <laughs> as as heroes yes. are seen as genocidal villains yes. uh, by another group of people. And, and you can look at the objective evidence of what they did, but that doesn't affect how, how people look at them. If you go right. to Mongolia today, you will see a giant statue of Genghis Khan, who's the national hero of, of the founder of, of Mon- the people of Mongolia. And, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the government has pushed Genghis Khan. Uh, objectively, Genghis Khan probably killed more people by his orders or by his leading the way he did than than most people you would know. Didn't he also father a lot of people? That's yeah, what I heard. Yeah, so, yeah. Probably that yeah, too. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. But you don't get points. <laughs> oh, so, 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 a little genetic trivia. Apparently he has a huge genetic impact like they can trace I, Tens of millions of people do yeah, descend from yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a number of people in history yeah. like there, there's, there's a, a Viking. I mean, not him. Not he didn't yeah. like not directly. I mean, like <laughs> he had children, then they had children. Uh, no, it wasn't right. just him. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> just clarify. Uh, so. but, <laughs> but you can go down. Many of the the villains of history are to other people heroes, and and uh, Vlad Tepes. Uh, yeah, 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 that's yeah. a very good example. Yeah. And and somebody who committed committed by. Today's standard, and I think this is the key thing. Today we're in a world where we are starting to judge people in the past by our own standards. Right. But, of course, that is highlighting the fact that standards were very different. Mm -hmm. And the book that I wrote that was sort of about this, which, by the way, I don't make any money from this because this book is out of print, but a number of years ago I wrote this book, Visions of War, which was about looking at how war was pictured in many media, I'm talking about cave paintings and Stella, bass reliefs, paint, paintings, oil paintings, photography, throughout history. And among the lessons I learned there was that there were some very, very similar stylistic attributes and ways of portraying different parts of the war experience. And one of them, which I devoted a chapter to, was the horrors of war. And Looking at the horrors of war, I realized that the concept of horrors of war, you could argue, is a relatively recent one. That there is a case to be said that for many cultures and many periods of history, if you'd said, oh my gosh, that is just awful what happened to those people, they would go, like, what do you mean? They were the enemy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the example, which I have an illustration in my book, is. Uh, the Zapotec civilization of Central America on some of its buildings, and I I reproduce the image there, they decorated their building with uh, carvings uh, of their dead enemies, which would not be an acceptable wallpaper for this building or most (laughs) public buildings today. Uh, but apparently in that culture, this was them saying, you, you oppose us, this is what happens to you. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a political message there. Right. It was considered completely acceptable to have pictures of dead, naked enemies in a public building that every, your, your children would walk by and your mm-hmm. wife would walk by, and your, especially the ambassadors from other nations right. would walk by, <laughs> which I think was the point. Mm. Yeah. And they did, they did not have moral qualms. They obviously did not necessarily think – we would define that as the horrors of war. In fact, today, mm-hmm. if, if you look at pictures from the 
famines around the world and, and holocausts around the world. There have been more than one holocaust, obviously, of dest destructions of peoples, and you see piles of naked dead people. That is the textbook, literally textbook definition of the horror of war. But yet in these many other cultures, that was like, hey, we're bad. Look at us. We're proud of this. We did this. You know, he, he, don't, don't you mess with us. You can't see it, but he means bad meaning good, like in the 80s, right? I mean, like, yeah. Thumbs up. Bad. Yeah, we're, we're, we're bad yeah, as yeah. in, like, don't mess with yeah. us. Yeah. So wait, they, wait, 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 that's sick. But they mean, yeah. they mean like, awesome, not yeah. sick. Yeah, and, and there's no evidence that they – they wouldn't have put it on their public building. And this is true in many, many ancient cultures. Mm -hmm. They would put – what they had done, you look at the Assyrian bas-reliefs, you look at Mayan uh, wall paintings, mm -hmm. they would show the massacre of enemies. And what did these cultures have in common? Well, they fought wars, and they lived and died by war, and part of their political message to, to others was that if you mess with us, this is what's going to happen to right. you. Mm -hmm. You also talked about uh, the, the concept that, that those people deserved it as divine retribution. Yes. Which is I mean, if you look at the writings, again, in disparate cultures, they, won't, they don't say, well, we, we slaughtered that tribe because we felt like it. They say they offended the god Assur and defied our king Yeah, and so deserved it. So the, the enemy who is slaughtered deserves it. So acting today, what we call mo acting monstrously was in many contexts in the past acting righteously. Right. And this, this idea around monsters uh, and monsterization, what, what really struck me about that part of your book was I went into the chapter expecting it to be about how humans at war do monstrous things. And one of the very first things you talk about is how that humans at war justified their atrocious behavior by monsterizing the other. And so that, that tendency to demonize the enemy, I'm sure that it's necessary for justification, but uh, how has that changed and, and how in this media studies field that you're in, do you deal with those concepts of, of managing the message around things that are going to end up with people being dead. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting... Yeah. That, that's very important. And yeah. one of the steps that I like to take students in when we're having a discussion of this is I think there's a modern mythology that spin yes. <laughs> propaganda, uh, public relations, trying to convince people of something is very modern. It has It's a 19th century mass production of print and pictures and so on, and, and mass propaganda, and that... Back in the old days, people just produced pictures which showed the truth. But if you go back, as I did in the book, to the earliest pictures we have, the earliest representational pictures where, okay, you see a picture of a bison, you probably figure that's a bison, right? And a picture of a horse, it's a horse. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting, and I will make the argument, well, by the way, they say it's always great to be a uh, arguing about cave pictures because there's no way you're going to be proved wrong. Yeah. You know, we can't bring in the artist to say, no, no, I didn't mean that at all. So, mm -hmm. so we can make up whatever we want about it. So there's a hundred different ways to interpret the cave pictures. But I find it interesting, the paleoanthropologists who pointed out that the pictures, and that we're talking about the Franco-Cantambria, that region between France and Spain today, which has these amazing, beautiful pictures, the, the Lascaux Cave, with the mm -hmm. gigantic incredibly well painted I mean amazing talent I mean, especially when you're thinking they're working with a three watt bulb 
you know, a couple hundred feet down in a dark cave. It's, it, if you think about it, it's just an astonishing mm-hmm. achievement. So we're not talking about just, you know, sticks, figures on a wall. Uh, but people who look at those notice, hey, wait a minute, the animals represented are nothing like what was actually in the archaeofaunal mix. That is, there's a famous cave of 100 mammoths. I think that's what the local chamber of commerce called it. There's actually like 120 mammoths or something on the wall. And they've only found like one mammoth tooth. So mm-hmm. the, the animals there are often fat to the point of Warner Brothers cartoon. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're ridiculously fat. They're, they're pregnant. Way out of proportion would be the number of pregnant animals. They're, they did live back then by subsistence, which is they ate anything that came along. Yeah. So they mm-hmm. ate salmon and they ate rabbits. There's no salmon and rabbits on the walls. It's only the big game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as a political communication scholar, seen through my lens, I go, wait, they were, they were saying this is, this, this is the big stuff. This is what matters to us. Mm-hmm. And that's, so that's what they put on the wall because if you kill – a, a pregnant bison, you have a fantastic feast. This is before McDonald's, right? This is before you could go order <laughs> yeah. food. Your family gorges on delicious fat and then maybe go hungry for a week afterwards. But boy, you remember that amazing bison that you had. Yeah. That we shared the family meal. And, and I, I just imagine Gorg running for president of the tribe saying, I'm going to put a bison in every pot. You vote yeah. for me. <laughs> you know, I'm the best hunter. Also, we'll develop pottery. It'll be it, great. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> Blake, I thought we agreed no puns during my show. I'm just saying. Just okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so not these the images were not a, a objective news of what was around them at their time that they were just faithfully recording. It was what they wanted. They were aspirational. They were what, what mattered to them. So th- it was propaganda 40,000 years ago. So that th- the human beings, the moment we started creating pictures, and th- those are associated with anatom- anatomically modern humans, us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, us cleaned up a little bit, you know, shaved and <laughs> fingernails filed down, uh, but basically us, mm-hmm. that they immediately started saying, how can we use pictures to portray the world as we want it to be rather than the world as it is? Right. Picture zero were that. So spin started right away. It was, it's a human thing to spin. Sure. Mm-hmm. So in a, a more modern sense, uh, who do we consider to be monsters today? Uh, I guess we're talking... In- serial killers and dictators, criminals. Right, and, and you're doing a podcast, and podcasting is a very hot medium right now and probably the hottest leader of, in terms of podcasts that get attention are the serial killer podcast. Or, are very yeah. Yeah, or the murder podcast. Ted Bundy at the moment with that new Netflix series. Yeah. Crime porn. I'm not sure what you want to call it, but yes. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, actually, the word porn is is, is an appropriate one. Yeah. There is it. We're we're looking at something that we probably don't want to participate in, yeah, mm-hmm. or can't. Uh, but we're fascinated, and we we watch it, and we consume it, and we we like to watch and hear and hear and uh, sense other people acting monstrously towards mm-hmm. each other. And we're not apologetic about it. If you put somebody on the spot saying, so why do you enjoy listening to the details of somebody being a serial killer? Somebody might get a little uncomfortable at that point, but the fact is it's popular. Mm -hmm. It is popular. It's very popular. I mean, mean, in in stories of where either the crime needs to be solved or has been solved or has the wrong Mm -hmm. solution. And we enjoy the forensics. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is something, it's not my taste to to Mm -hmm. watch an autopsy, Mm -hmm. but think how many programs now 
feature detailed autopsies, mm-hmm. uh, opening human bodies, seeing bones sliced open, and and that's on television. I mean, it, it is. It, it, it's, it's, it's it would not have been in when I was growing up. They right. wouldn't have had a lot, you know, NCA. Right. Uh, what, 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 I guess I'm getting some of these shows. Uh, yeah, the the forensic shows. Oh, like NCIS or yeah. NCIS and yeah. you know those sort of things. Yeah, but yeah, and they're very popular. Yes, so, they are. So, if we are scared of these things, why do they fascinate us? Why are we attracted to them when it's something that we we fear and deem to be monstrous? Well, I, I see it almost as sort of an ego function. Is we're we're attracted to the dark and dangerous part of us, and most of us are not going to behave that way. Mm-hmm. Most of us are not going to do that, but we find it fascinating. Evil is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's more biographies of of Hitler than and shows about Hitler than about Gandhi. I yeah. mean, I mean the, the evil is intrinsically interesting. I mean, it's like every actor wants to be the villain in a movie, not the hero, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> If you have a choice, yeah, you get the best lines. Yeah, exactly. The hero, get, the, the villain gets the best. They certainly lines. have screen presence, don't they? I mean, like Darth Vader doesn't say much, but boy, he he steals the scene when he shows up. Better costumes too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, go, go ahead. Uh, uh, so you were saying, well, not all of us are going to behave that way, and and that's true. Uh, but I'm sure we're going to talk about a hit, about Hitler here and there throughout this. Uh, yeah, and and we have a whole episode coming up that we're studying for or prepping for about uh, the Nazis and. Yeah, uh, based on a, a book called Hitler's Monsters, and and, um, yeah. so and it deals with paranormal experiments, paranormal super supernatural mm-hmm. sort of interesting. It's interesting. It's the, really the great interesting. monster. Now, so so there's the small monsters who are the. I mean, I, I not to their victims. They're not small, but they've killed you know twenty people, and they they've acted monstrously. It's mm-hmm. a horrible crime. Yeah, get these words, horrible monster, right? right. And then there's the big monsters of history mm-hmm. that. We, you know, the body count is in the millions. Right. right. And they did not kill, in fact, most of them never killed anybody themselves. Mm-hmm. I, uh, Hitler was in the army, Stalin was in the, the, the Red Army. I don't think it's documented that any of them, either of them actually shot anybody right. personally, right? right. So, yet, they oversaw systems that yes. killed tens of millions of yes. people. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's true of almost all the 19th century mass murders. I, I, I think Tamerlane and Genghis Khan probably did, you know, individually pull out their sword and kill somebody. Probably. Yeah. But well, uh, it reminds me though. I, I speaking of the way that you demonize your enemies in combat versus, or you know, in war, the um, the story about uh, Winston Churchill and the forced famines in India and the way that he could have maybe managed that differently and potentially saved millions of lives, but literally millions of people died. But nobody thinks about, well, obviously some people do, but most people don't think about Winston Churchill as a monster. Yet he maybe had a hand in in a very high number of deaths, uh, not war-related, but just making decisions, just making decisions that potentially killed vast numbers of people in a very horrible way. But the messaging in the English-speaking world, the allies after the war, doesn't really focus on that. You know, we were, uh, it it was a justified war. Those were the terrible enemy. And I'm not saying they're not, you know, by any means. Well, well, that's a very important point is that, uh, again, I think you can make the argument that it's relatively recent in human history that people did not fight total wars. I mean, the, the term total war arose during World War II about the idea of 
that if you're going to have a fight between two modern industrial states, the entire state has to be dedicated to the war. That is, the civilians are all working for the, the war. There's no, there's not, there's no distinguishing between a, a civilian population and a military population, and that's that's a relatively modern idea. At the same time, it's a modern idea that the civilians are not culpable and should be left alone. So it, it's, it's, it's interesting yes, how these things yes. sort of arose at the same time. The notion, the most horrific war crimes in the 19th century, 20th century arose almost at the same time as the notion of there was a war crime. Right. right. But if you go back in time, there was a, there was a famous uh, article written a couple of years ago by Jared Diamond. He's very famous for writing that book, Collapse, and a number of other books about sort guns, of guns, germs, and steel. Guns and germs and steel. Yeah. And, yeah. and like a lot of people who writes big uh, survey books, he gets faulted by the individual experts in sure, one area. Sure. But he wrote this article for The New Yorker, which got him in, tr- in, in some trouble for different reasons. But among the things he said was that he was meeting some tribal people who said, yeah, you know, back in the old days before we became a co- an independent country, we were just tribes. We killed people all the time and no big deal. I mean, they were the enemy. We just killed them. And we didn't, like, have stress disorder because of that. We'd, it was just a day's work yeah. because mm-hmm. they were the enemy. And there is, I think, reasonable evidence that that was a pretty common view. Right now, there's a big debate going on, and it's so politically charged, I almost want to say nothing on it, about can you look back in time and say there was post-traumatic stress, that that the killing created stress, mental anguish in Viking times, in Roman times. And some people, a lot of people now will argue, aha, you can read the Iliad, you can read Viking sagas and Mm -hmm. see evidence of what we call post-traumatic stress syndrome. I, I am not one of those people because I think there's actually very little evidence that the Roman soldier fought a battle and slaughtered some Gaulish villagers and then went home and had nightmares about it. I think he, he took his pay, he got his 20-year pension, he got his wife, his farm, and he bragged you know, that I was a Roman legionnaire, right. and, and he was fine. <laughs> There, yeah, there was no maybe maybe disorder. if the victims too were dehumanized, then he didn't see them. No, you know, as, yes. as people that were worthy of life, and um, you know, this is just it's all in a day's work. Which I guess brings us kind of back to uh, the the Holocaust um, of, of Nazi Germany. Um, and earlier, when I was talking, well, you were talking about um, not everyone being capable, of, or not everyone um, who is going to become a, a serial killer or could necessarily be capable of being a monster, um, but. I was thinking when I was putting together questions for this show about the Nuremberg trials and uh, the philosopher is Hannah Arendt, I think is how you pronounce her last name, talked about the banality of evil. Um, and I'm just wondering, are we all capable of being monsters you know, under the right or wrong circumstances? Is everyone capable of being a monster or is that not the case? And Hannah Arendt said that about uh, Adolf Eichmann who yes. was one of the architects of the Nazi Holocaust. Yes, the final I, I think there's some question today about whether she was right, because she was portraying Eichmann to be this bland bureaucrat who would have just efficiently done anything. He, if he'd been put in charge of uh, delivering ball bearings to the Air Force, he would have been just as efficient as he was delivering people to the death camps. Right. I think there's more evidence that's come out today that he was actually a very dedicated Nazi. I mean, he bought into the ideology. He wasn't just 
pushing papers for the heck of it. Right. He really wanted to kill people. Mm-hmm. So it's not quite clear how much you have to buy in. But the fact is, again, going back to the big monsters, they create systems in society where you could argue everybody contributes a little bit of monstrousness. Right. Maybe they don't actually work as a death camp guard, mm-hmm. whether it's the Soviet Union or the Pol Pot killing fields. That very few people actually are at the point of death, mm-hmm. like they're the guard at the camp right. and they're shoving people into a uh, uh, gas oven or, or uh, poison shower or they're shooting people but there's a massive machinery of people who are indirectly somebody i think wrote did a story once about the german railway system about boy they were really efficient at delivering people to the the, the death camps and if you were a railroad worker it's hard not to notice that those trains were full of humans right being delivered yes. one yeah. way and never back right right so so how monstrous was being a german railway worker during world war ii versus being a death camp guard and right. again i don't want to pick out one disaster horror of history that happened sure. that ha- that happens so often mm-hmm. that i think the answer is that almost all of us seem possible that mm-hmm. we would either be maybe not monsters ourselves mm-hmm. as in like actually shoot somebody or murder somebody a child, but we seem possibly all of us to be able to be at some point culpable of being indirectly little monsters. So, like in a, a kind system. of interdependence in a sense yeah. of everyone working collectively. Well, and making small decisions where at just some point when maybe you could do something, you could you, stop. You say better them than me. Yeah, and that that simple little act that, of selfishness right. can lead to really horrible consequences because it happens again yourself. and again and again. Yeah. yeah. And, and it happens so many different places. I, I have a, in the book about this site uh, what it, near what is now Crow Creek, South Dakota. I haven't read it in a while, so I may get some of the details wrong here, where we find piles of bones of some massacre that occurred, and I believe they dated at around 1200 BCE. So before, I mean, unless you believe Vikings or Irish showed up before... Columbus came to America, there was a massacre of one tribe massacred another tribe, and they find evidence of starvation, that this was a period of of drought, and people were going hungry, and probably one tribe decided, I'm going to wipe out the other tribe, and you find evidence of what the anthropologists call overkilling, which is that people are killed like four or five times over, the young women are missing, Mostly, the bodies are, are not don't don't include young women. So they they did what most peoples do when they do that is they kidnap the young women and they killed everybody they considered to be useless. Which and that that has happened so many times throughout human history. And again, I I just don't find it credible that the people who did that lamented about it afterwards and felt guilty and mm-hmm. said, "Oh gosh, you know, we should never should have done that. That's terrible." And and wrote books about their their misery and pain. I just believe it was part of their culture that was perfectly acceptable and move on to the next thing. So or, or, I, I know you could argue that as individuals we're better off when culture does move away from those sort of values. Um, I don't know that, I mean I think people like um, Steven Pinker have been arguing that you know we're trending towards uh, more inclusiveness and, and better medicine and, and like we live in the best time possible. But I, I wonder you know, is 
that a guarantee? We're treating that way now. Is it, how easy is it to lose that sort of viewpoint? How easy is it to slip back and, and sort of backslide into a time when the human, the value of human life is is less important? Because it seems like a, a really easy thing. I'm seeing it. I feel like we we tend to eschew. We we avoid politics and religion on here in general, but mm-hmm. without talking about specifics, I see right now posturing in certain parts of the world where some capitalism-driven factors are causing uh, uh, a lot of media around other countries being tyrants when they were never really tyrants before. Suddenly they become tyrants, we have to save their people, and we're, it's, to me it sounds like posturing for justification for war, you know, or justification for military action. And you know how how easy is it to slip back into a devaluation of human life? Do you think? Well, the the Rwanda genocide was just in the '90s, right? And Bill Clinton, as president, when he went over there, he apologized and said, "We blew it. You know, we we should have uh, interfered, inter- intervened with genocide there." So. We don't have to go back that long to see an actual genocide of hundreds of thousands of people that occurred where people who'd lived to, and this is very important, these are people who'd lived together, the friends and neighbors. Most genocides are, co- are committed by your friends and neighbors. Yeah. They're, they're not necessarily com- committed by outside forces. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the genocide in World War II, the, the Soviet genocide, was of other, 99% of the people killed were other Soviet citizens. Right. Right. Same uh, thing in the former Yugoslavia as well. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. In the, I think in the Macedonia, in... Um, in in, in Serbia, the, 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 Croatia. Yep, yep. Pol Pot oh. didn't kill any non-Cambodians, as far as I know. I mean, or 99% of the people he killed were, were brothers and sister Cam- Cambodians of the same ethnic group, same original religion. I mean, no religion. So... It, it's it's interesting how we can create an other that is worthy of death who looks exactly like us in every way. We don't have to turn somebody into a Sasquatch or a drooling vampire to hate them. Mm-hmm. They can be indistinguishable from us in every way, but based on one category, religion, politics, ideology, mm-hmm. oh my we gosh. can justify mass killing them. Metaphorically? When you become the person killing someone else because they're the monster, in a very real sense, you become a vampire because when you look in a mirror, you don't see the monster. <laughs> that's a very <laughs> profound thought. Like yeah, that. that's interesting. Yeah. So, mm. well, I don't. I want to have it. Mm. <laughs> this that, that was me imitating my own daughter. Whenever I say something like that, she, she puts her fingers together. And says, hmm. <laughs> She's very funny. She also, I'll just mention it now, since we talked about it the other day, I, I was giving her one of my little speeches because that's what I do, and uh, she just interrupted me, held her hand up, and made a sort of invisible check mark in the air and said, unsubscribe, and then turned and walked away. <laughs> I'm going to have to start using that on you. <laughs> it's, it's good. It's good. So anyway, I didn't mean to derail. We don't so. recommend families doing that at home. I think that would cause some trouble. I'm pretty laid back. I do blow up occasionally, but it never lasts very long. And so And it's usually about stupid stuff like me walking into a wall. So, you know, <laughs> so they won't let me have a nerfed house, apparently. So, yeah. I was also thinking about uh, the... The other ways that we use the term monsters, if we talk about people who are different from us, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, as different interpretations of, of monsters, and that um, 
some people consider transgender people or intersex people or homosexual people to be monsters. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk to us a bit about about that and I guess the way that we categorise people and, um, yes, and just, I, just different I, interpretations of monsters. I wonder whether the movie monster, who is absolutely distinguishable, I mean, you walk into a room and one person is a 10-foot-tall ape creature, which one of these things is not like the other? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most movie monsters are distinguishable, although it is interesting when you have movies like The Thing, which play with the idea of the monster is hidden within us. Right. Right. And will come out, but you have to try to detect who's the monster in, in the room. So that, mm-hmm. that plays with the genre. But most movie monsters, most popular culture monsters are identifiable. Even when they're humans, like like uh, werewolves, they turn into a monster. They, they, become, they can become a monster. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Right. Mm-hmm. He's not a monster. He is a monster. Right. But the monsters of history, from Ted Bundy to Stalin, are not observable as monsters from a distance or unless you know the historical context. They blend. Yeah. 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 They, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn had a wonderful uh, comment about this, and I'm probably butchering it. He said, it would be very easy if evil were detectable in the human body and we could just cut it out, but it's, it's part of us. It's in our heart. Yeah. And so we would have to kill ourselves to get rid of all evil. And I think that that's a very appropriate way to to put it. Uh, we're all capable of this under certain circumstances, unless mm-hmm. most of us have never been tested, of course, so we just don't know. Right. So I think it's hard to say, I will never do evil. It just makes me think of a Leonard Cohen poem, <laughs> I love Leonard which Cohen. We'll, we'll, we'll get Blake to recite here. So and I think that It's not too long. I'll, I'll just go and read this out. And well, I think it's there's a, not enough poetry on your show. That's true. That, yes. Can I do the Charge of the Light Brigade later? Or absolutely. It, right, but I, I think this is a good example of monsters in that are hidden in plain sight. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy... UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there's many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Okay. All right. So um, this is All There Is to Know About Adolf Eichmann by Leonard Cohen. I will not attempt his voice nor his Canadian accent. Um, eyes, medium. 
Hair. Medium. Weight. Medium. Height. Medium. Distinguishing features. None. Number of fingers. Ten. Number of toes. Ten. Intelligence. Medium. What did you expect? Talons. Oversized incisors. Green saliva. Madness. That's the end of the poem. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that really nicely illustrates. I like Suzanne better, I oh. think. So. <laughs> no, uh, that is a very good rendition of the issue of, of human monstrousness is that it is very hard to detect. Now, there are people who are sociopaths and psychopaths, and there are tests, we famously, on that. Have you had John Ronson on the show? We have. Yeah, yes. yeah that's right. I've mm-hmm. forgotten that. And of course, he wrote a whole book about that. And although he was one of the people to point out that you can have a functioning sociopath or psychopath who just thinks a certain way but knows that they have to hold off on deploying it. Not, n- right. not every sociopath and psychopath is murdering people. Right. Mm-hmm. Some of them are successful restaurant owners and right. just <laughs> deploy it enough to... Not, not, not calling names. Some of them are franchisers. I mean, just, I mean, just, you know, I mean, just, I think the, the well, entre- entrepreneurial, uh, it, it really works well if you're not sort of constrained by a lot of empathy, I think. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. so, so these mechanisms would not exist in the human gene pool and our choice within our brain if they didn't at some points in history prove useful. I I think we call out a lot of things over time. Again, going back, anatomically modern humans did all of these things. So we are anatomically modern humans. The human brain has not radically changed. There's no evidence that our brains today are different than Assyrian brains or Aztec brains. Right the same brain so we're, we must be capable of the same thoughts and the same doings mm-hmm. yeah no let me think for just a moment so talking about labeling people and mm-hmm. um, I, it seems to me that there's a concept of empathy reduction around this so right. it's like from a messaging perspective you know that if you can convince people that that other person is different and not fully like you, it somehow justifies having less empathy for them. Right. So how does, have you given much thought to how that mechanism works? Yes, and what's fascinating to me is how easy it is for that mechanism to work on very fine gradations. Let me give you an example. Another work I did many years ago for a magazine called Visual Anthropology and Academic Journal was about the Waffen-SS, which was the military wing of the SS. If you just think of Hugo Boss uniforms, that's what we're talking about there. They they were really Mm well-dressed in their black and silver. And I traveled to Koblenz, West Germany, where there's an archive that has a lot of their original photographs from their propaganda company, their, their photographers who traveled with them, just like military photographers do today, and took pictures. And I was fascinated by the following. Now, this was for younger viewers and listeners out there. This is film photography. So you have the original negative roll of 36 pictures or whatever number was in the roll. And you can see the progression of which pictures they took one right after another. 
And I was fascinated to see that they would enter a Polish village. Mm -hmm. And maybe the first half of the role was exactly what pictures you would take if you were vacationing with your family in a quaint Eastern European village, where you take a picture of the a church, you take a picture of the town hall, and maybe you pose in front of uh, an old uh, barn. But then the next half of the role was them blowing it all up. Wow. So they changed genres from tour. I call them the tourists of destruction. Yeah. From tourist photography, which would be indistinguishable except it's, it's black and white and yeah. on, on film, from you to, and now let's burn it to the ground and take some great pictures of burning buildings because we like to blow up things real good. Yeah. It's very perverse. <laughs> it is perverse, but I would argue apparently it's also the way the human brain works. Was we, that? We, we can make that flip. Right. Very, very easily. Yeah. It's what, frightening. What, was that for cataloging purposes? This is to prove they did their work? Well, this this yeah. is something I talk about to our students, is that uh, who, who documented the Holocaust? The, the Holocaust was not documented by today. Well, you'd think of genocide is going on, and can the news media gain access or satellite photos or espionage or something like that? It, the, the Holocaust, whatever documentation we have, was gathered by the Nazis themselves. We have hardly any photographs of the Holocaust as it was occurring. Right. That was the, the pictures weren't taken by Nazis, by by, by Germans mm. or Nazis or whatever you want to distinguish the individuals there. Why did they take those pictures? And and those pictures were clearly either documentation. Uh, the uh, military commander of the unit that destroyed the Warsaw Ghetto printed a coffee book, a coffee table book about it. Wow. wow. <laughs> and, like, gave it out. Yeah. I mean, the, Germany was being defeated, but he had enough mm -hmm. time to get, print a coffee table book. Uh -huh. He obviously didn't think those pictures were horror photos, atrocity photos. Yeah. He thought they were tro trophy photos. He was, he was, so there was bureaucratic mm -hmm. documentation. Now, even the Nazis realized that it probably wasn't a good idea to hold a press conference that they were doing this. So they, they actually discouraged generally picture taking, but people still took pictures. Yeah. So there was uh, documentation by the bureaucracy. There was trophy photos like, yep, we visited this, this village and it's burnt to the ground. Way to go team, right? And then there was tourism of just, this is part of our world tour, you know, Hitler world tour, 1939, 1945, that Look at all the destruction that we left in our wake. Uh, no evidence that any of those people who took those pictures put them in the genre that we would today of the atrocity photo and the horror right. of war. Yeah. Because if they wouldn't see that as a horror, if they had completely otherized the, the victims, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I don't yeah. want to get too facile about, like, the other and, and demonize. But, yeah. but, again, there's some things here that we're, I'm oversimplifying. Yeah. There's mm -hmm. debate. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, some people will argue no, they weren't dehumanizing them. They just thought the victims were bad humans that had to be killed. So it's it's there, there's, it's not as, as simple right, as like, right, right, well, right. well, okay. Everybody yeah. we kill is non-human. Well, Actually, so, some so, people... So, uh, yeah. The justifications there, by, for whatever means, right? So it, it's, it still comes down to empathy depletion, right? I mean, I mean so I mean, you, there has to be a reduction or otherwise you don't do it. I mean, there was no clear and present danger from the internal... Uh, population of Jewish people in Germany to the other like Aryans, except from an ideological perspective and their own conspiracy-driven thinking. Right? I mean, they believed there was a conspiracy. They believed it was. They believed in Jewish capitalism as being right. a threat. And, but, but that's a cultural difference, not not a based on like a a, a, a real 
Like these people are all Germans. They're all human well, beings. They, you know, they well, marry. you're saying that. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, so. they didn't believe that. And and, yeah. and talk about one of the greatest evidence of what they believed is during World War II, the British very cleverly, when they captured higher German officers, instead of throwing them in some dark, dank pitch prison, put them in a very nice facility in in England where they had servants and high tea and recorded them secretly. And after a while, these people just started discussing everything. Yeah. And so those those transcripts exist, and they talk about the death. These are military officers. This is not the high rank of the SS or the, the, the death machine. These are military officers, tank, Air Force, Navy, infantry, and they talk about the destruction of the Jews in there. And they don't know they're being recorded. So I think that's pretty big evidence that something was going on. Yeah. They knew mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that was not as publicized after the war as it should have been because a lot of people are surprised and they don't they don't know about about this. But they say, well, th- they don't even seem to, to recognize that this was anything bad. They say, yeah, well, we had to kill them anyway. So, uh, who's up for cards? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I was thinking too uh, with a lot of the dehumanizing language that uh, appears around that time, which is unfortunately still in use today. If you go onto Twitter. Uh, anti-Semitic language referring to Jewish people as uh, rats and vermin. Um, I think that they, the Germans actually had some terms, too, for people with disabilities. I don't know exactly what they were. But and there was a mass murder subhuman. of people with disabilities before yes. there was... The yeah, with Holocaust. Yeah, yeah, well, they were certainly they certainly yeah. uh, attacked various groups. I think it's worth mentioning, though, that in, at Nuremberg, as I understand it, that some of the Nazi defense arguments about the justification for eugenics and, and that sort of activity, sterilization and, and death, they pointed to America and said, "Hey, you guys had a eugenics program. You sterilized people against their will. So how, who are you to criticize us?" So. I, I realize we didn't have death camps, but we With were certainly immigrants. capable. Of, we certainly capable of like rounding people up, and we were certainly capable of making choices over who they could marry, who they could breed with, all sorts of things. And a lot of that around, again, um, I think considering those people to be different. Again, I don't want to oversimplify different, it either, bad. but but it, it is it is a way of of. <laughs> The in-group, out-group is such an easy way to categorize this, but I don't really know exactly uh, where that sits academically. Like, you know, what are the latest studies on that? But but I do feel like like growing up in a, in a region where racism was and still is a big part of the culture um, and where um, uh, cultural norms are based on certain conservative ideas, and if you deviate from those, you're judged harshly or sometimes even beaten, um, it, it is easy... Um, to see how that even if those people are not actually participating in the harm, they excuse it on the basis that it disagrees with their norms. And you see many systems throughout the world. Let's turn to the Soviet Union, because we decided, we, the United States, the Allies, decided 
that we were going to be allies with one genocidal system and dictator to defeat another. And, and the justification for that at the time, which actually I, I sympathize with, was that Stalin wanted to be a genocidal dictator and rule one country and some border regions. Hitler wanted to, to rule the world, and so we, we chose the one who was more limited in his, his ambitions, basically. I mean, there's a lot of, again, insert 5,000 arguments in books of World War II, but I was reading a number of biographies of Stalin going to the empathy question. People would be sentenced to the gulag, and there you could appeal that. Right. You could write a letter and say, I'm falsely imprisoned, I shouldn't be here, and people would write personal letters to Stalin saying, I shouldn't be here, get me out. Because they believed Stalin was not the cause, right? It, yeah, I mean, there, there, even even yeah. people in the gulag would think, well, if only Stalin knew, it's mm-hmm. these other people, these right. bureaucrats, or Bye. something like that. Mm-hmm. And they also just thought he's the leader. I'll write. I'll write. Yeah, them. yeah. So those letters exist, and there was a, an amazing, amazing man named Dmitry Volkogonov who was in charge of those archives when the Soviet Union fell, and he was a secret Democrat apparently, and he wrote these three um, just the best biographies of Stalin, Trotsky, and Lenin. And the one about Stalin has, a, he had access to these letters. So he read these letters and he also saw, Stalin had this famous blue pencil where he would write, kill, you know, get rid of, you know, process, whatever he would, actually he'd never write kill, he just you know, process. And what Volkogonov noticed was the only letter that were, he, he turned everybody down. If you, especially if you said like, oh, I've got three children that I have to support, they'll starve if, process, don't, just keep him in there. That, mm-hmm. that meant nothing to mm-hmm. him. Where he seemed to be moved to empathy was, I'm here because I'm the only efficient ball-bearing construction line worker, and I was denounced by the other idiots, hmm. and ball-bearing production will go down because I'm not there. This is just some political crap. And he would he, occasionally he would say, yeah, release this guy. It, it, it probably is just people jealous in the factory. Wow. wow. Yeah. So he... So, Anything to do with humans, like mm-hmm. my children, my wife, my health. Didn't touch him. He, he would go out of his way to show that he didn't care about that. That he was, right. the, he was Stalin. He was the man of steel. Right, right. Who had no sympathy for any normal. In, in, there's a wonderful line in the movie Reds, Warren Beatty's movie about the early Russian Revolution, where a Russian revolutionary official says, today in, in Russia, the personal life is dead. And a lot of these ideologues sort of foregrounded that, that they're, they're above ordinary human love, hate. They don't love or hate anybody. They just serve the party. Mm-hmm. They serve the nation. They serve the ideology. They serve the race. I mean, you can insert a lot of serves there, serve the fatherland, serve the motherland. Mm-hmm. And it's a higher calling than these ordinary human emotions of, I don't hate my enemy. I don't love my, my friends. I just serve the party. And that, that was the ethic that he had there would should never show emotion or caring. He would he would arrest the the wives and children of his compatriots like in the Kremlin to test them to see whether they came to him and said, "Oh, you know, release my wife." If they didn't, then he they passed the loyalty test. Wow. So since that's something out of the Bible. You been, I want to ask something a little less dark. <laughs> can we go less dark? Yeah. I, I think I think I can find something a little lighter, but yeah. you you talked about this sort of uh, this kind of going back to where we, where we began with this sort of classical history and ancient history around um, 
the divine justification for the atrocities of war. Do you see many counter-narratives in the historical record? For example, I've never looked for it, but I've also, I've never read or heard of a a version of the Iliad from the the perspective of the Trojans. Uh, Is there something like that? Oh, there is a version from the Trojans. It's the Iliad itself. I mean, if you look at the Iliad, you could argue that the Trojans are the heroes. They're these poor, aggrieved victims of this. Well, homicidal... I can get that perspective, but no, it's, no, not, it's, it's a there. great message, though, right? No, it yeah. is there. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the hallmarks of a truly great work of literature, I would argue, is comprehensiveness. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people say Shakespeare was the most comprehensive writer in the English language because he, in a play, you could see multiple points of view right, right. and have multiple sympathies. There is no 100% villain. I mean, Richard III, right, comes out and says, I'm going to be the villain of this play. But then you sort of understand some of his motivations and, and, and complexities. Everything, things are multifaceted and nuanced. The Iliad, Hector, uh, his children, uh, Priam, men, most of the sympathetic characters are on the Trojan side. So I, you, you could argue, I did a, a fun study uh, he, with uh, a graduate student here who's in classics, Dr. Rob Peasley, who you was your host for your visit and also yes. you taught in, in class and everything, he co-edited a book on the villain. He does some popular culture work, and it's a book, a book that's coming out soon on villains. And you interviewed us, Kate Mongrain and I, for a previous show about henchmen. Right, right. yes. And we talked about how in the Iliad, Myrmidians. Yeah, the Myrmidons. Oh, Myrmidons. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the, I made a new word. The, 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 the henchmen were on the Greek side. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. Okay. So so I think great works of literature show that multifacetedness. But the Iliad was almost an exception. Most of the time, things were more one Well, yeah, I'm thinking now about, like, maybe, maybe I picked a bad example, but so, like some things where we have all, the only record are, say, tapestries, like for the Battle of Hastings. You know, it, it tells a story about the battle, but only from one side. Mm-hmm. You know, what do we have for the other side of that story? You know, that, well, yeah. a- again, yeah. sometimes you can read different things. Yeah. And it's hard because the person's not there. The, so the answer, the, I think, is yes. The, yes. The, the, we do get counter-narratives. Yeah. I, I think yeah. Again, within really, tr- we, uh, maybe this is one criterion of a really great work of art in the pre-modern art era yeah. is that you could read multiple narratives and ideas into it. Right. And the Battle of Hastings, I mean, y- you can't look at that tapestry, which I have and I did for my book, without gaining some appreciation of Harold. Yeah. You know, Hick Harold interfectus est. You know, here Harold is, is killed, right? But, but you see him being crowned. You see him being king. I mean, the, the narrative of... William of Normandy and of the Normans was that he was an illegal king. And that's how they, they justified in invading England. They weren't invading, they were liberating, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever invades, they always liberate. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> that's not on. actually what's in. You see him crowned, and, yeah. and here he becomes king of England, Harold. So it's not completely clear that it's all one sided. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, t- I'm not trying to challenge you. Uh, no, no, uh, I, that's why I asked the question. But no, you, you there are one sided yeah. ones out there. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's hard to look at those Assyrian bas reliefs where you see just the piles of bodies of, of the Assyrian king smashing all these enemy cities. I mean, today you look at the go, gosh, yeah, sort of sorry for the people in that city. But back then, I think it was 100%. The artist, the artist's job was to make the king look good. That that pretty much describes most art until about 1600. Well, it's also interesting in, in the in the historical narratives that survive from those times. 
there's not a tremendous amount of empathy for the people who are being destroyed. There's a lot of smiting and, and wiping out and a lot of smiting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, smiting is yeah. is a big so, big deal in art yeah. for thousands and thousands yeah. of years. So. I can smite you. Yeah, you probably could. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> so. I'm bigger. Well, talking about yeah. size, physical size, I, I've always been interested in the anthropological literature. There's this idea of the big man mm-hmm. in a tribal community. Yeah, somebody who gives gifts, somebody who is the leader in wartime, and I mentioned. Karen, uh, and very, very interesting, which I've never seen it physically, I'd like to visit it, mm-hmm. a, a Australian image that shows thousands of years ago a battle. And I, again, I'm always interested in these, these stylistic shorthands which have existed across cultures where you can mm-hmm. tell that there's two sides right. and that there's, you're using different weapons and you can tell there's leaders. Mm-hmm. And BC, the easiest way to show that one person in a, in a tribal army or military band is the group is to make him, him typically, you can see it's him because there's a penis. Mm. Right? <laughs> There's one artistic convention that we think yep. perhaps <laughs> shows a male uh, is physically larger. Yeah. He's literally a but big that's man. That's a leader. Yeah. A leader role. Yeah. And yeah. if you think about it in a guerrilla warfare, small group, tribal warfare, being six foot five and built like a linebacker probably has an advantage in battle. <laughs> no, so I'm thinking now about the movie 300, the way they presented Xerxes as being like literally like a nine foot tall. Yeah, yeah God, not, not, I don't no, no, think no, that's but, his, but, but, but uh, no, no, I don't yeah, think it's historically yeah, accurate. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it was, it was interesting imagery that comes out of the comic book, but. Uh, and, but, and, you know. and they make much, and the Spartans, I mean, that movie was realistic in the sense the Spartans did spend a heck of a lot of time talking about how phys- physically fit they were. Yeah, they were in the and, gym. And, yeah. and showed yeah. off. And so. <laughs> they, they were the guys at the gym who would so. come in front of you and you know, yeah. flex. Yet, often beset by their own fear. And, and by yeah. the way, yeah. I, I, I want you to know, uh, as you may know, my, my mother is Greek, and her father came from the Peloponnese, so I am one-eighth Spartan. Which you, I know, no doubt you can I tell. tell. I yes. can tell, right. Everybody yeah. mentions so it when I walk into the room. It's not just the abs. It's like a it's, challenge to yeah, it's the It's the, yeah. the plumed hat that you're wearing. I think yeah. that's one of the more interesting <laughs> and things. And aren't you of Persian descent? I th- thought you <laughs> mentioned uh, No, I ran from no, that. No. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> On behalf of the listeners. I mean, that was a good one. I, I, okay. <laughs> I but, okay, so I guess we need to wind up. Yeah, uh, yeah, but all of this talk about soldiers and, and I'm just making note of all of the names that, that we've raised of Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and Ted Bundy. Men, do you think that yes. this is gendered in any way? Do you think that there's something concerning uh, masculine roles of uh, going to war and being warfaring and being violent? Is there something about uh, men being more monstrous than, than women? Is it men who are monstrous? Well, historically, you can look at who was a soldier, mm-hmm. who was a warrior, and overwhelmingly, the anthropological historical literature will say the people who do killing of other people are men. Right. And you can come up with cultural reasons, sociological reasons, biological reasons, psychological reasons, but it's a fact mm-hmm. that different roles have been assigned throughout history. There was a very funny, I mean, horrible, hor- horrifically funny Onion video, the Onion, the parody, mm-hmm. where they they had this fake. St- I mean, it's an Onion story about a, a woman dictator in this third world country, and they had these clips of women saying, 
my whole family was killed, but I was so proud it was done by a woman because <laughs> women need to, need to pioneer these new roles. Uh, yeah, yeah. They, they were they were praising so the her groundbreaking for work, right? Ground, exactly, groundbreaking <laughs> gender ba- breaking gender barriers uh, <laughs> there, and I mean that's horrible and funny at the same time, but it, it is true. But but it, it, it's a historical fact, right. and I could you could do several shows on why that's so. Mm-hmm. It's clear that there was roles assigned from very early on in many cultures to sure. what was women's work mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. men's work. And, and a lot of people have pointed out that those roles aren't as fixed as we thought. Mm-hmm. There's a very good book uh, I just read a couple of years ago. I'm forgetting its title. It's about uh, Mother's Work is Never Done, but talked about in in medieval times up through, say, the 19th century, a lot of jobs in the, the home area, which we th- think of today as women's work, mm-hmm. men did them. Right. And then when the industrialization occurred and men would leave for most of the day, mm-hmm. leave what, what, instead of going to being on the farm and people working together, men would go to another job, then there became the gender split. Right. That is much. So some things are just purely cultural conditions. Well, and, and there's the bias of the present, right? You, you yeah. think what happens now is what's always happened. Yeah. Are there exceptions to that that rule? Oh then? yes, absolutely, and we we find new interesting things in the archaeological record. Although, if I was just reading a story about uh, um, the Scythians, that they, they've identified some of the buried warrior uh, mounds there, where they see somebody's buried with their horse and their armor and their sword, and it's identified as as a female there. So there there were warrior traditions. The 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 Amazons is is probably one of those legends that had some historical truth that there were warrior women and maybe because the Greeks had very very strong at least the classical Greeks at the time that they were doing this writing and and legendizing had sort of strong gender diversions maybe just hearing that there were some women warriors over there on the steppe helped create this legend of like a whole tribe of amazing woman warriors it was so shocking they created a a whole genre out of it, but, it, it uh, you know but thinking you know it, the serial killers right there, there's been women serial killers it does seem like statistically it's more often male yeah, yeah. but but there are women serial killers and then uh, but in the narrative around that I mean even like the the one that had uh, Charlize Theron was it, it was yeah, called Monster movie. wasn't it yeah I think, yeah, it, was, yeah, I think it, was it was called Monster it was, and is she any more of a monster than a male serial killer you know you know it, I mean Ted Bundy the, he looks so safe you know that um, and he would try to be look yeah, even yeah, safer like yeah. he had very charming this perfect guy. Yeah. this thing of pretending his arm was in a cast yeah a lot of the stuff that happened in uh, Silence of the Lambs around uh, the uh, Buffalo Bill murder were based on attributes of other real serial killers you know mm-hmm. the way that that killer yeah. captured people and there's another case of the real world influencing the fictional world influencing the real world influencing it's just this cycle but um Oh, man, I, I guess we're kind of running out of time, but that's such an yeah. interesting point. I want to say, oh, I remember, this is topical, The this idea about who's a monster having a media of, a, a component around who controls the narrative is perfectly illustrated in the new documentary that's out about Lorena Bobbitt, right? So Lorena Bobbitt was absolutely famous in news as a punchline. How she was uh, seen at the time. How she was at the time, mm-hmm. and now... Um, thanks to the the director and uh, the producer Jordan Peele, 
Uh, I can't think of the director's name right now, but they basically have gone back, revisited, and looked at the story again, and now we're seeing that the story is really quite different. That you know, along she, with changing perceptions, yes, of this yes, kind of thing. yes, exactly. So the harassment yeah. and. Uh, John Wayne Bobbitt. Not, is that a John Wayne Bob? Is it? Is it? Yes. It is it. Yeah. Well, yeah. We're, we have in, among yeah. our two thousand one hundred students, we have a journalism program. We yeah. have lots of programs. We have a journalism program, and one of the findings that you have, if you look at journalism through history, is that the, the f- journalism famously was said to be the first draft of history. The mm. first draft is almost always wrong. Yeah. Initial <laughs> report. Whenever you hear initial reports, yes. from a scene. And this is unfortunately what leads in the internet age and social media age to a lot of conspiracy theories because they'll say, oh, the first reports from the school mentioned three shooters. Well, people heard shots yeah. from mm-hmm. coming from one direction and then later, well, the, there was one shooter, but but he moved, for example. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So people will pick up on that and say, the news reported six shooters, seven mm-hmm. shooters. One was tall and dark and one was short and, and light. So uh, we have to be very careful with initial reports of anything, and especially in an internet age, they're gonna be full of rife of errors, and you're gonna be able to go back years later and only then find out what actually happened. What happens, last time you were here, we talked about what's your favorite monster, and you answered automatons. And so I wanted to kind of revisit that. Since you've already been on before, you already said automatons. Maybe he, maybe that's changed now. Maybe he has, has a different changed? favorite or, monster. Or, well, dealing with you. Yeah. <laughs> has, now that you've uh, met him face to face. So this is what it feels like to be made a monster. <laughs> <laughs> you will be remembered in Lubbock, uh, Blake. Uh, you make quite an impression. Uh, I think I would re- revise and extend my comment that I, I guess human beings are the ultimate monster. All the other monsters are trivial compared to what humans have done. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, how many people has Bigfoot killed? I mean, even in fiction, how many people has Dracula killed? Yeah. Versus, I mean, not Vlad Tepes, but like but, yeah, Dra- yeah, yeah, Count yeah. Dracula. Yeah. Uh, Godzilla certainly crushed a lot of homes. Mm-hmm. Right. But the human monster, the actual live human monster has done so much more damage to the planet and to ourselves and to the other creatures on the planet. It, it's, it's not even close. It's like a race where somebody is first and everybody else is a thousandth. Mm-hmm. And right. so if you ask me, what, if you ask me what the ultimate monster is, it's, yeah, we're looking at it in the mirror. Right. And you should all be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Monster <laughs> Talk. <laughs> And your ratings plummet. You uh, the last episode of A Monster Talk was coincidentally on the. <laughs> well, thank you again for having us. This thank has been you wonderful. So much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It was very, it, what, a terrible topic. But, but I think the lesson is we should be vigilant mm-hmm. when people start to use language and, mm-hmm. and imagery that makes us think that somebody should be killed and is just, it's justifiable to kill them. And we should. We should be vigilant today and to 20 years from now. That's never going to disappear from the human race as a problem we face. Yeah, I think an important a, a tangent or parallel to that, what I've heard in your classrooms talking about media criticism, we should all be media literate and be skeptical, not in the sense of we don't believe everything we hear, but that we question it and figure out whether it's true or not. But I, that is such an important skill, and I'm glad you're teaching people here about that. And I hope that maybe through our show we're reaching out and sort of helping people question the narratives and, and figure not just 
because they want to disagree, but to try to find out what the truth is. Right, and the best modern case of this is all these videos that it seems like 10 a day where you see like five seconds of a video of somebody behaving badly and people plunge in right away and say, oh, this is the bad guy. Yep. And right. then later on, they show 15 seconds where, mm, sort of, well, it's more complicated because that person did this before that. And now, now, this is the bad guy. If we could just shut up <laughs> yeah. and stop making judgments based on such limited information. We mm -hmm. tell our journalism students, don't write a story based on one source. Verify. Yes. yes. In facts, look up multiple sources of inf information. But mm -hmm. it is a fight today on Reddit or social media to get people to stop coming to conclusions based upon extremely limited or no information. Mm -hmm. it, yeah, it, it's a different approach. Soundbite generation. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. Cut. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Dr. David Perlmutter, Dean of Texas Tech University College of Media and Communications, discussing humans as monsters. We'd like to thank him again for hosting us on our visit to the Lubbock campus. Karen and I had a wonderful time, and it's inspired us with some plans that we hope to execute this year on how to bring you even more content. This episode of Monster Talk is sponsored by the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University. Are you ready to acquire the persuasive communication skills that you need to reach your full potential as a leader in science, technology, engineering, or medicine? Check out the college's new graduate certificate in STEM leadership communication, designed specifically for STEM professionals. It features just four online classes taken at your own pace from anywhere. Earn the communication skills that today's employers demand with a fully online STEM leadership communication certificate. Visit comc.ttu.edu forward slash STEM leadership to learn more. Monster Talk's an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Longtime listeners to Skeptoid and also to our colleague podcasts often ask, what can I do? We all believe in the value of critical thinking and of the intellectual tools that help us tell fact from fiction. But we don't always know how to best spread those tools to others. Well, let me offer one easy and effective option. Skeptoid Media, that's us by the way, is currently in production on a feature documentary titled Science Friction about how the media abuses its science experts by misquoting them or editing them out of context. 
exploiting their reputations to promote sensationalized news or fake documentaries promoting debunked alternative histories. Part of our mission as a nonprofit is that we will retain educational rights to give this movie free to teachers worldwide, alongside complete, professionally produced educational materials to bring formalized lessons in critical thinking and scientific skepticism directly into classrooms. To retain those rights, we're crowdfunding the initial production. We're just about halfway to our goal right now, which you can see at sciencefriction.tv. You want to know what you can do to give the tools to students? This is it. We're asking a basic contribution of $100. If you're on the team, now's the time to take the field and play ball. Please come to sciencefriction.tv and make your tax-deductible donation to Science Friction. We ask $100, but any amount helps. Donate enough, you can even become an executive producer and get a legitimate screen credit. Sciencefriction.tv. Watch the promo and see our stories. Monster Talk theme music's by Pete Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you so much for listening to and supporting this show. to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. It features this... Mm-hmm. I, do, I fix all this in post. This is, yeah. Cool. Earn the communication skills that today's employers demand with the fully... No, see... I can piece it together. Good first take. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the whole interview is going to be just like this. Yes, exactly. <laughs>